Democracy needs a marketing department. That's according to Steve Wanzik, a former marketing expert turned elections protector, who is the subject of today's episode. Steve founded the nonprofit organization Protect Our Election in the lead up to the 2020 U.S. presidential elections. Motivated by the observation that the principles of American democracy are under assault and require active defense, Steve and the folks at Protect Our Election believe that local election officials in particular, the backbone and unsung heroes of American democracy, require more support and attention than they are getting as we try to move forward from this pivotal moment in American history. Steve and I talk about the origins of his own understanding of democracy, voting as an exercise in, I want my team to win. We also discuss developing awareness of our confirmation biases, spoiler alert, we all have them, and the work he is doing with Protect Our Election to navigate the growing challenges of election misinformation in online spaces and to bolster the work of American election officials. I have loved all of my conversations for this podcast, but this one holds a special place for me. Steve and I have connected over our shared interest in supporting local election officials in the United States, and I really think the insight he offers here exemplifies the kind of humble, value-driven curiosity and action that is sorely needed in today's political environment. Finally, we don't yet have sponsors here at What Voting Means to Me, but this is a friendly reminder that we are quite literally supported by democracy. Thank you, Democracy, for making this podcast possible. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of What Voting Means to Me. so much again for being here. And I will start by asking you the question I ask all of my guests and tell us a little bit about your first realization that you lived in a democracy, be it something that happened at school or maybe a conversation with your parents, going to the, mm-hmm. going to the voting booth with them, uh, anything that you can sort of pull out of your brain. I would love to know more about what that first realization looked like for you. You know, this was fun to think about, uh, knowing that, that this was the question to kind of kick off the podcast and and taking me back. I suppose the nature of this exercise is going to date me a little bit, right? <laughs> <But as laughs> That's a, okay. Child of the 80s, um, you know, I, I remember being in elementary school and sort of having that elementary school level awareness of who the president of the United States was and, and, and sort of learning those basic civics and, and knowing that there was a man named Ronald Reagan, who was the president of the United States and nothing ever seems contentious about that. Right. Mm. That, that was just our president. And, and this was such a, it was such a simpler time. The moment where it would crystallize a little bit for me was the 1988 election because I'm from Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, we had Michael Dukakis running in that election in 1988. And I remember feeling like um, it's interesting because it's almost it was a foreshadowing or maybe this has always been the case, but it was this 
looking back and making that connection now, I'm realizing how tribal this stuff really is, right? Mm -hmm. And because I was 11 in 1988, and I remember thinking that, yeah, Michael Dukakis is running for president, but really Massachusetts is is mm. running for president, you know, mm-hmm. you know, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of like, I, you know, rooting for the laundry in a sense, because when you're 11, you're probably a little too young to have, you know, policy preferences. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. depends on how politically active and conversive your parents are maybe, but yeah. probably a little too young to yeah. have strong policy preferences, yeah. And, but I had, I remember having a very strong preference that I wanted Michael Dukakis to win because it was Massachusetts, because he was our guy. Mm. And then, you know, I, I think as as you mature through middle school and high school and into college, of course, the policy preferences do take shape. Um, and in thinking about this, it's, it, you know, really is, is it, is it the chicken or the egg? I mean, and I think that who I am as a person today, you know, aligns very well with the policies that happen to, uh, you know, link up with the laundry I started rooting for when I was 11. Um, but, you know, it's an interesting, it's an interesting question. And I think I, I meant to look this up um, before this conversation. You might, you might know this offhand though, but, but I think I've read something recently that talks about how, political party identification has become a greater part of individuals identity it's sort of what people say first you know or oh, yeah. you know when it used to be oh i'm a i'm a husband i'm a dad i'm a i'm a little league coach um i like to read you know whatever used to be at the top of that list now people lead with i'm a red voter i'm a blue voter yeah um you know and that and that feels so destructive right mm-hmm. and and in thinking back to the eighties, I, I found myself wondering, well, was I just a tribal, you know, did I come up that way too? Is it, it, it I went one side or the other because of where I grew up. And, mm. you know, I think we have to, we have to consider that when we think about ways to repair the bridges that have been burned down in this country, because I, I it's easy for me to say I'm from Massachusetts. I'm a proud blue state voter. And, and yeah. I, I, I link you know, the sort of ideals or or values of the Democratic Party with things that I think about myself, uh, you know, uh, valuing science and and intelligence Mm -hmm. and sort of rational um, inclusion and things like that. And and those are all a huge part of my identity. I'm pretty sure that if you, you know, talk to someone who was born in Alabama and wound up rooting for the red team, Mm -hmm. they would pick out the super positive, you know, uh, values that they would align themselves with. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so whether that's patriotism or, or, you know, family values, whatever it is that, you know, I think before the last four or five years, you heard those talking points a lot. They've sort of abandoned even those talking points now. But, um, you know, so I, I think... Having um, having that perspective, you know, to kind of view how you got to where you are, but then think about the fact that other people got to the, that same place or a different place the same way, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, by, by being part of a tribe and then by sort of the self-fulfilling prophecy of finding the positive values that are mm-hmm. <laughs> that are re- reflected in that tribe. The note that you made or the, the um, point that you made about the role of partisan identity sort of starting to supersede all else absolutely is becoming something that's especially strong, obviously amongst strong partisans, but then you also Mm -hmm. see among a subset of the population, a real distaste for partisanship 
and party identity. But I think that you're spot on in your observation that that uh, point at which partisanship becomes an entrenched part of one's identity can be great for mobilization and great for getting folks engaged and participating in many ways, but also explains a lot of the ills that we're navigating today. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I had the realization leading up to last year's election or, or sort of the, you know, framed it in, in this way, which is attempting to persuade, you know, a voter from the other side um, to, to make the switch is like trying to convince a, a Yankee fan to be a Red Sox fan, right? I mean, it's that like deeply tribal. And I started to actually explore this idea and like I wonder if there are people you know how could I find a few people out there who who switched teams literally yeah and would it be worth sort of interviewing that person about that experience to see what it was mm. that got them to switch from the Yankees to the Red Sox or or you know Alabama to Auburn to put it in a, a, a southern you know southern perspective Michigan Michigan to Ohio State Ohio State to Michigan yeah you know it, it's obviously, I'm sure, very, very rare, but there have to be some people out there who, you know, who've done that. And it would be, I think, an interesting interview because that's the kind of like, I think, psychology you have to bring to the discussion about how to how to persuade people, mm-hmm. um, you know. And so then whether it's persuasion, that's the answer and maybe it's not, but it has to be finding some sort of middle ground and valuing compromise again, because, you know, as much as I... Uh, as we've established, identify with with one side over the other. I think to loop back to the original question of sort of realizing you live in a democracy and the importance of that, mm-hmm. it's that this is the only way we coexist, right? I mean, there are, I don't know, 350 million Americans or we're higher than that now, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but many of whom, you know, I, I have nothing in common with other than the fact that we share the same landmass. And so, you know, thinking about voting as the peaceful way to implement policy um, and live together in a functioning society, uh, you know, it's sort of the only way to do that is by a a common understanding that that's necessary because otherwise we degrade into violence, Mm. Um, you know, and so that's why I think I've been so passionate about the work that I've jumped into in the last year and a half, two years, because it is, uh, you know, it's terrifying to think of what, not just what will happen, but what is happening with this degradation of trust in the system. And well, once that happens, you know, the, the rule of law is no longer considered legitimate. And we, you know, we just, we go back to to, you know, violence as, as ways to retain or, or attain power. Yeah. Um, so I think it's really, um, you know, an existential problem, and, and it wouldn't have crossed my mind five years ago that we'd be here. <laughs> yeah. I think that, of course, we were going to, um, you know, come to the work that you're doing uh, with Protect Our Elections, and I think that now is a great time to transition into that. So I'm wondering if you could tell folks who are listening a little bit more about this project and Mm -hmm. the motivation for it, how you got into it. So, you know, it started the concern about things literally falling apart. And and if we've, if we lose that thing that we have in common, which is a belief in democracy and and a a comfort with settling our policy disputes peacefully um, through the ballot box, 
then, you know, then, then where do we go from there? And I've got two young kids and suddenly it's, it's a little scary to think Mm. about the world they'll be living in 10 or 20 or 30 years from now, if we keep going down this path. So, um, not quite two years ago, uh, I left a job in the private sector doing digital marketing, mm-hmm. um, because I wanted to find a way I, you know, this kind of stuff was just keeping me up at night. And it was of course, before the 2020 election. And I didn't want to spend my days worrying about, um, corporate KPIs and marketing metrics and sort of writing reports that in the end, you know, weren't, weren't doing anything to fix yeah. the world's problem. Um, as great of a job as it was. Uh, and, you know, I enjoyed the people that I worked with and, and the clients, but it just, it didn't feel like the thing I needed to be doing in that moment. And so I, I left that job and and started to think about what are, you know, come some of the niche areas that I didn't think were being addressed prior to the 2020 election, because mm. you've got plenty of huge national organizations that were worrying about, you know, voter registration and protecting, um, you know, voters uh, at polling places, um, fighting these fights in the court system, you know, highly trained lawyers with years of experience in this kind of thing. But one thing that didn't seem to be getting much attention was the role that state and local election officials play in the national process and whether or not that was a, a weak link in the system, whether or not they were susceptible to top-down pressure, mm. um, you know, and so the sort of nightmare vision I had was, well, let's look at states where you know there's a Republican Secretary of State who who may or may not have a, a degree of control over how that state's election system is run. Um, let's look at states where you know there were maybe it was split, a Democratic governor, but Republicans controlled the state house. Uh, and where what are the avenues that could potentially you know be abused by someone who wanted to put pressure on folks because you know we talk about institutions standing strong but institutions are are nothing that's ephemeral right it's the people in those spots mm. and so l- last summer um, on our website we started doing a state by state analysis of who who were the people inside those institutions and whether it was a Republican secretary of state or, you know, county uh, election boards and, and, you know, in key jurisdictions, where were the the points that were likely to get a little bit of pressure? Because, you know, maybe some folks turned a blind eye, but for me, we could see a mile away how this was going to play out, right? Whether Mm -hmm. whoever won the election last fall, um, we knew that one of the candidates was never going to, you know, concede and he was going to use every lever of power he had to, mm-hmm. to try to cheat the system. Um, so I, I started talking about people like Brad Raffensperger in mm-hmm. June of last year and no one else was. And, you know, as we got close, closer to the election, you know, some more folks started thinking about this. What happens uh, if there's any sort of dispute or multiple slates of electors, you know, get sent uh you know, through, you know, sort of January. And then, of course, I mean, through December of that year and then into last January, um, culminating in January 6th. And, you know, boy, it feels like we narrowly, narrowly dodged that bullet. And we have to view 2020 as a rehearsal, really, more than anything, because the same folks that are trying to seize control of the election system are still at it. They have more time to prepare. Um, and, you know, there there's an effort to get extreme partisans into some of these positions like secretary of state or county clerk, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, 
the nightmares that I, were, I was having prior to 2020 now seem even more likely to play out uh, mm. because we're actually seeing it in, in some counties and some of the key states like Wisconsin and Michigan and Arizona. Um, you know, some of these, you know, supporters of the big lie, quote unquote, are are stepping in to actually assume some power over the process. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we're doing about that, because I'm I'm very focused on doing instead of just talking, I, there, there are all sorts of webinars and white papers and, um, you know, media pieces that come out that sort of talk about the problem, but I never see. Guilty. Like, Guilty as charged. What are we supposed to do? Yeah, you know, <laughs> Excellent think pieces. And we need to then translate that into action because I think if, you know, the the same circle of folks who are already aware of the problem write, you know, articles, read those articles, but it doesn't filter down to the rest of the population, right? And so that's where my background in digital marketing, it, it feels like it's really what's needed right now because mm-hmm. there has to be a way to get this out. Um, you know, and, and, and sort of sound the alarm, um, right? Jocelyn Benson in, in Michigan just, the, just this past week said it, it's a five-alarm fire now, mm-hmm. right now it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, what we're trying to do is, uh, you know, use some digital marketing to get, get this in front of people, engage people, and, and let them know how they can help. And, and, you know, basically that's by getting more involved with local races like county clerks, um, county election boards and, and getting more, um, shining a light on, on some of those things that's going on. So we, we've got an army of volunteers who have been very helpful in going through, um, you know, over 5,000 jurisdictions in the country, trying to be as thorough as we can to look at, well, what are at the county level, you know, sort of the hyper-local level, what are these election officials doing on social media, you know, mm-hmm. and how can we, how can we help them? Because the vast majority of election officials, you know, for, for decades do it wonderfully well. And, 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 you know, they are, um, they're committed to democracy and, uh, and, and wonderful professionals. And so these are people who don't have the budget, they don't have the support. And in many cases, they don't have the staff to be proactive about, you know, communicating how things actually work. Mm-hmm. And so in that vacuum, the conspiracy theories take hold. Um, you know, I, one, one way I like to think about it is that for most of my life, you know, conspiracy theories were such a fringe thing that the standard response was, I'm not going to dignify that with a response, you know, but because of the internet and the rise of social media and how easy it is now for disinformation to spread, I'm not sure that's the case anymore. And I think democracy desperately needs a marketing department, right? We need, there needs to be a proactive effort to get the truth out there because the truth doesn't speak for itself. I'm going to use that tagline, democracy needs a marketing department. That's brilliant. (laughs) That's brilliant. That's the thesis. That's the through line here. But I'm wondering if I could uh, connect or ask you to think about the comment you just made about conspiracy theories and how it used to be that you, you just didn't dignify them with a response. And now things have changed so much. I'm wondering how much of our national susceptibility to conspiracy theories, how much of that do you feel is connected to this increasing idea of maybe not partisanship as identity, but these these strongly held beliefs that we have mm-hmm. about our political yeah. system as a part of our identity. Yeah. Like I'm a deep state or I'm a QAnon, you know, I guess I'm curious to hear 
how you've seen things evolve since your sort of first, you know, burgeoning memories of or experiences of of this is what it's like to live in a democracy. We have these teams that we play for to sort of where we're at now. Yeah, absolutely. It's confirmation bias, right? Mm -hmm. And if that is part of your identity and you're you're on the quote unquote team, anything you see that reinforces that you believe to be true. And, and, and now that we are in the social media age, there is no barrier to entry there, right? You, you don't have to, you know, earn the right to sort of blast your views to millions of people. What social media has done is now you don't have to do it professionally to just, you know, blast what you think is the truth based on the laundry that you're wearing and the confirmation bias <laughs> yeah. that you know yeah. you live with. And that's a real thing, right? That's not it's very hard to to burst out of that. I mean Absolutely. I'm, I'm sure I'm susceptible to it as well. Yes. Uh, we yeah. all are. And mm-hmm. so that's a it's a really tricky, you know, kind of socio psychological problem, I think, which is, you know, how how do we um reconnect and sort of find commonalities again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I, I'll point out that your willingness to say I'm probably susceptible to this too, we all are, is the kind of, that is the first step in sort of transcending yeah. is being, I don't even know if it's a will, it starts with awareness because I think that for some folks there's just not even awareness of yeah. how these confirmation biases are happening and then there's that willingness to actually be open to the idea of, I don't, I don't know everything just because I read a Wikipedia article. I don't right. know that's too trite of an example. And that's even, the, even more trite is a Facebook comment. Yes. <laughs> right. right. Somebody thinks that, that, that they know everything to know about an issue because an anonymous, you know, comment aligned with what they wanted to believe. Yeah. And I think the other, the other comment I want to offer, you are someone who values input in a democratic system. Yeah. Uh, I think it's probably safe to assume, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. You're someone who wants our system to be secure and safe, but also for there to be access to voting for voting to be a process that is accessible to everyone who is eligible you know so there yeah. are there are places where we get a chance to express our preferences and govern ourselves and we also have to understand that we aren't experts in everything and this is why we yes. delegate representation this is yeah. why we delegate expertise the counterpoint to what might come across as condescension i think maybe there's a little humility from this perspective, because I was thinking about, you, you know, the political science classes that you start to have in high school and college, where at least back when I was in them, um, you know, there were interesting debates about what is the role of your elected representative? Or should yes. they mirror exactly what I want, you know, what I think about the world? Or am I electing someone whose judgment I trust? Yes. can then go and make an independent judgment that reflects the community, but is also in the best interests of the community. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I fall into the category of I want to elect someone whose judgment I trust because I can't possibly predict, you know, every situation that would come down the pike. And I also, like you just said, I know I'm not an expert in lots of things. Yeah, yeah. So I do want to circle back around to 
the some of the more specifics of the work you're doing with the Protect Our Election. Yeah, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what your specific goals are with this data collection process. So you have over 5,000 jurisdictions. You've had this team of volunteers that have gathered the Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and websites for the local election official entity. And if not the local election official entity, then the sort of county level entity or the township level yeah. entity. And yeah. yeah, tell us a little bit more about what you're looking to do with this information and why it's something that stands out to you as being so important. Yeah, so it goes back to this idea of what happens to information in a vacuum and when the truth is not being proactively put out there, specifically on, you know, on, on digital uh, platforms who is taking that space, right? And as we well know, it's the conspiracy theories that are spreading like wildfire on Facebook and Twitter and, and you know, Instagram, TikTok, where we're, you know, we're seeing it um, expand and get, get you know, across more and more of these platforms. Um, and so as I, you know, continue to remain curious about that, there were some studies that I read last year that suggested that when it comes to electoral issues or, or questions about election administration and how things were run, people trusted their local election administrator, right? E even people who think that the entire country is uh, is corrupt and and the election was corrupt and and there's no go there's there's no changing that fact. They'll trust what they hear from their local person. Knowing that that people trusted their local official, I got really curious about well, how many of these local officials are engaging on social media, and and is that a way that we could fill some of the vacuum? Um, and there didn't seem to be any other large organizations doing this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's tremendously valuable to look at how many local election officials have social media accounts, have a presence, how active are they, you know, mm -hmm. what kind of things are they sharing. And sort of our preliminary findings are um, not terribly surprising, mm -hmm. but but not all that positive either, which is that, you know, 20-ish percent, I think, is what the what, what I was looking at, um, do have a social media presence. So of over 5,000 local election jurisdictions, you know, 4,000 or so, are not active on Facebook or Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's where, you know, people don't hear from their local authority. And so they hear conspiracy theories instead. And so the first step here was, I think, just to produce the data, because that in and of itself, hopefully has some value in a national discourse about how can we fight disinformation. Um, and, and then we want to actually do a few tangible things with it as well, one of which um, if we think back to the uh, to last year's election and Facebook put a freeze on all election-related advertising in mm -hmm. the 10 days or so leading up to the election, um, all of our local election officials got swept up in that. So yep. there, there was no, you know, Facebook didn't distinguish between whether it was an official source or just some dude with a Facebook page trying to, you know, wreak havoc. And so in some surveys and communications we've done with these local election officials, that was a real 
point of frustration, which is that even if we wanted to put our very, very limited advertising budget towards getting some truth out there ahead of the election, Facebook froze us. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we want to do with this list, now that we've got a list of the thousand or so you know, election officials that have a Facebook page, we're taking it straight to Facebook and we want to say, number one, let's make sure all of these uh, accounts have a blue check mark yes. and that they're verified Yes, because that's another, uh, another sort of uh, layer to the research we're doing is, okay, do they have an account? And if so, is it verified? Because that causes confusion too. If you're a local election office and you are the authority, but you don't have that blue check mark, you don't get the same, you know, sort of preferential treatment in the algorithm. And, and I think also just from people consuming the content, they're going to gloss right over that and, and not necessarily take it as seriously. Yeah. So we want to push for blue check marks for all of these local election officials. And then I'd, I'd love to take that up another notch, which is to petition Facebook and Twitter to provide free advertising mm. um, for the election officials in you know a 30-day period around elections or something like that. Mm -hmm. Because I think that would help surface the truth it would help this idea of democracy needing a marketing department. And I would certainly hope that Facebook in particular um, would value that as a way to, uh, you know, to kind of repair their reputation a little bit and some of the damage that they've clearly been responsible for in the last couple of years. That's something that seems to me would be a drop in the bucket um, for a company like Facebook is to give 5,000 local election jurisdictions some free advertising and a little bit of a push you know, and clearly they, you know, they they did make a huge donation um, to to CTLC last year, and, mm -hmm. and that got distributed. And so there's an awareness, right? I just it, it it I feel like the issue is nobody had done the legwork to put together a list of the accounts that need it. Mm -hmm. And so now that we have, um, it seems to me that it would be a no brainer for um, some of the social media networks to use this information in a productive way. Yeah, absolutely. A follow-up question I want to ask in terms of both whether or not you've come across this as you've been collecting these pages and just any observations that you've made elsewhere, how much of a concern for you is threats against election officials on social media? Mm -hmm. I think that you are correct that amplifying their voices on these platforms is going to be, yes, a drop in the bucket, but it could be a pretty substantial drop in the bucket uh, in terms of pushing back against some of these trends that we've seen, declining yep. trust in American elections. But I've talked to a lot of local election officials, have heard from local election officials who are really struggling with these threats that are coming at them in unprecedented levels. I'm just yep. curious... Any thoughts on sort of how we can balance their how how we can incentivize them to participate in these online spaces and communicate with voters while also recognizing these yeah. very very real concerns? Yeah, um, great question, and we've actually got two other projects that are active right now that I think address that. The mm -hmm. first of which is. Um, I mentioned some surveys that we did around local election officials and, and kind of what their needs were in the wake of the 2020 election. We asked questions about 
how could this have gone better? Where do you feel like you could have used extra resources? Did you feel pressure mm -hmm. from you know, a, a various number of sources? Um, and we got some interesting answers across the board, but one that I really zeroed in on was um, folks who said they understood the importance of communicating via social media, but they just didn't have the budget, they didn't have the staff, and they didn't have the expertise. These aren't trained digital marketing professionals. Um, so as a response to that, we've spun up um, what is a pilot program now, but we've got some local election officials involved, um, which is a, a free pro bono social media kind of analysis service mm. that we've rolled out and we can customize it based on, you know, what the you know, kind of chatter is or what the concerns are in any given state. Um to give them a little bit of intelligence in terms of what's happening on social media and what are the things that might require a little bit of a response, right? If so, if one particular conspiracy theory is starting to bubble up in Michigan, say, about a, a very specific thing, mm. well, what's the best way for Michigan election officials to respond to that? Mm -hmm. um, and so we've we've created that service as a, as a packaged up report that as of now we're delivering once a week trying to make it as easy to digest as possible because we know that, uh, you know, everyone in these roles, um, they have very busy lives and lots to get to. And so we're hoping that just by taking, giving something that, you know, takes five to 10 minutes of their time, it can really add um, a lot of insight into what's going on in their jurisdiction and mm -hmm. their locality and whether or not it sort of when um, something rises to the level of needing a proactive response, like when, yeah. um, why is it important and how can we best shoot down this particular conspiracy theory or this rumor that's going around this mm -hmm. this belief that people have about you know a boatload of extra ballots that came in in the middle of the night or something like that and and that can always be easily and logically explained if you actually take the time to listen to the people who know what they're doing mm -hmm. um, and to make sure that the people who know what they're doing have the platform to to share that and it's just so sad isn't even the right word. I mean, it's sad and it's devastating that this is the point that we're at in American yeah. democracy. And it is truly remarkable that you as a private citizen have developed this team of folks who are doing this work and doing it pro bono. And mm -hmm. I, I think I also wish it didn't have to be that way. I very oh, yeah. much value the work that you're doing. And also it's just kind of wild that in this day and age, yes, again, you as a private citizen, not working in government is, mm. is taking this upon you and your, your team and your, uh, your incredible team of volunteers are taking this upon your, uh, yourselves. And the, the one other, um, thing you mentioned that I wanted to just come back to was the getting on top of misinformation that's bubbling up mm -hmm. is so important because you're not necessarily looking to persuade or stop the folks who have initially started the thread. No, but right. there are yeah people who are busy, who don't know the ins yeah. and outs of elections, who are susceptible yeah. to this kind of stuff. I can't tell you yeah. the number of Facebook messages I got last election cycle 
Mara, I know you're a professor. This looks really sketchy. And I'm so glad that they reached out to me because I could say, okay, here's Pennsylvania election code. This is what's going on. But who yeah. has the time to do that? And right. and yeah. so you're absolutely correct that um, providing this service to election officials to help them get ahead of these yeah. issues as best they can is really, really important. So I want to bring things to a close and come to the question that's at the heart of the podcast, what voting means to you. And I'm wondering if you could talk just very briefly about your first memory of voting, if you are a voter, and maybe how that's evolved and how you think of this act at the heart of democracy today. Yeah, sure. So do the math. Um, I turned 18 in 1995. So the first time I would have voted was in the 96 election. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would have been in college um, and haven't missed an election since, you know, primary or general. I, I, I will own up to probably there have been some local elections in my past that I have not voted in. And it's funny, now that I'm so focused on this, uh, that's incredibly important because, you know, and this is probably a quick digression, but one of the things we're working on is trying to figure out a way to track where um, local election official positions are being filled by people with an agenda, people who are, you know, big lie supporters or, or QAnon, uh, you know, adherents even, mm-hmm. um, and trying to figure out how to flag those ahead of time so that people in, uh, you know, in a county in central Pennsylvania say, do vote in that local election, because those are the kinds of elections that get like 10% turnout. Mm-hmm. And so if there's a QAnon person who runs for the county clerk spot in an election where only 10% of that electorate is coming out, you know, they can win with a tiny, tiny fraction of the overall populace. And and, and now suddenly they're the ones running the next election. And so yeah. I think that's that's the that's the other project that we're working mm-hmm. on a little bit. It's a little farther down the road. But I mentioned voting for the first time in college. And, and I, this is I think, an incredibly important experience to share. And I wish everybody had it. My college roommate was a proud Republican. Was, mm. And this was a different era, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, for sure, much more genteel, even talking about the 90s, um, you know, but I was a I was a self-identifying Democrat from Massachusetts and, and he was a Republican and he's, you know, my best friend to this day. And I just wish that was still more prevalent than it is. And, you know, we would have passionate debates deep into the night like you do when you're in college oh, um, yeah. about, about politics. And it never, ever got to the point of personal animosity. And, and, you know, that's what I think politics ought to be. And and that's why I think everybody ought to vote, um, because disagreeing peacefully over policy questions, and I have my own, you know, uh, preferences on gun control and and climate change and, and economic inequality and everything else, but my personal preferences are no more important than any other American citizen who's going to go out there and vote. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this is the way that we need to hash it out and find a way to coexist. Mm-hmm. Um, and it feels like that used to be a lot more possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really hope we can get back to that. Mm. Did you guys go vote together? Did you Were you able to go on campus? That um, would be yeah, really sweet. Yeah, I'm sure that we did. It's yeah. funny you ask. I, 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 I'm, yeah, I think we probably did. Yeah. Mm. I think that that type of connection and dialogue, at least from my perspective, feels so fraught these days because 
of both the extremity of the positions, asymmetric polarization within, uh, you know, on the, the Republican Party side of things. And also, there are certain things that aren't up for debate or shouldn't be, like yes. a, fu- a functioning democracy. And I think one of the most damaging things that has happened is this approach that, you know, don't condemn me for my political beliefs. This is a political belief. We're just having a political disagreement when, in fact, the disagreement is about, like, reality itself mm-hmm. and, and, and you know, whether or not the rule of law should still be something that binds us together and, and you know, conspiracy theories infiltrating that. A political debate ought to be about, you know, tax policy and mm-hmm. education policy and, and even things as raw as abortion, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's a legitimate political debate. Whether or not our elections are corrupt is not, mm-hmm. right? And it's sort of at the point where, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I feel like twisting around that old, uh, why do you hate America? You know, that was sort of a thing 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because I'm pretty sure I've never hated America. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I want it to get better. And, and I think that's an important important piece of this is that, um, you know, working together to make it better. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that, I say this to my students, you know, we, we take a critical look at this country because it is a country that has potential and is worth defending yes and also growth doesn't happen and this is not just when we're talking about country development growth doesn't happen if you're not critically reflective on the place that you live and on yourself and your role in it uh well thank you so much is there anything else that you'd like to add before we wrap up um no no this was great this was a lot of fun and and a, a conversation that um I knew would be interesting to have with you. Um, so thank you for inviting me and including me. And, and it was, it started from a fun place of thinking back to, you know, where, where, uh, where these, um, kind of perspectives start to form and, and it's, it's gone to a slightly terrifying place, but let's, let's fight through it together.